0: rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord.
1: This passage is very unique in the structure and the setting compared to all other stories where you have someone who is a problem in the culture. um, Every single one of those stories ends with the destruction of that person for the justification or the settling or the peace of the city. You may think of Oedipus. If you've ever heard of Oedipus, Oedipus was the son of a king, and it was prophesied by an oracle that he would rise up to kill his parents, and and he would would, become this evil king. And throughout the whole epic, throughout the whole myth, the entire time, he's warring against this this doom, this prophecy that's been put on him. And then eventually, try as he may to run away from it, he ends up fulfilling the very prophecy every day of his life he was trying to war against. You may think of the other epics, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, in which there's this battle between the god-men and the men who are at war with other men. And throughout the resolution of that story, it's all about war and the putting to death of the one who is the problem. And in this situation, in this story, though those are epics and those are myths, those are untrue stories, this being a true story topples those doctrines. It topples the idea that we have to get rid of the problem kid from among us, and then we'll be justified, then we'll be at peace, then we'll be right. This story presents to us a demonstration of the gospel, not only as a means by which uh, we may obtain personal salvation, It also includes a glimpse of God's heart to redeem cities and to restore people groups. You might think of a parallel chapter in John 4. Jesus heals this relationship with this woman. She's the woman at the well. You may remember her. She says that I don't have a husband. And Jesus tells her, perceiving by the Holy Spirit, he says to her, you're right, you don't have a husband now, but you've actually had five. And the one that you're with isn't even your husband right now. And he begins to undo these chains that are wrapped around her heart, that she's been abused by these men who've, who have covenanted to her and then divorced themselves from her. And she's attempting to find fulfillment. As soon as Jesus presses his finger on the issue, she tries to change the subject and says, you Jews say you should worship in Jerusalem, but we say that you should worship here. What? Which is it? She tries to divert the attention. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, there's an hour coming that you won't worship on this mountain, nor will you worship in Jerusalem, but you will worship in spirit and truth. For the Father is looking for worshipers such as these. And so Jesus begins to unfold and break apart these chains that have bound this woman's heart. And then what happens? The woman goes into the city and begins to tell the city people, the city folk, if you will, the towns, townsfolk, she tells them what Jesus Christ has done. And what happens to that city, that city that's outside of, uh, of Israel, it's Samaria, they're, they're considered by the other Jews to be half Jews or fake Jews, they're detestable people to the Jewish people. These people actually receive Christ and ask him to stay for a long time. We're going to contrast that with what happens in this chapter. It not only shows Jesus Christ high and lifted up as the one alone who has power to cast out demons, but also it shows us God's heart to save not only individuals, but also communities. It's not enough that you are saved and then keep that salvation, that little personal testimony to yourself as if it's not been given to you as a stewardship so that you would invest it in others and have it bear fruit in them. Your testimony, what God has done in your life is supposed to be the very word, the very message which you bring to others so that they might have hope that they could find uh, peace in Jesus Christ. This is exactly what happens in this passage, and in that context, I want to look at five elements of the passage today. I want to look first at how this man was living among the dead. Jesus says to his disciples, come and follow me. They say, Lord, let us bury our fathers first. He says to them, let the dead bury their dead. It's significant that this man is living among the tombs. We're going to look at what that entails and why he's there, what it means for him to be there. We're going to look at this idea of demonic oppression. I, I'm convinced, and we're going to look at this in brief detail. I'm convinced that the English Standard Version and all other versions which translate the word "demon possession" as such—it's not originally it wasn't written in English. That's a translation that is misleading. I don't think it's deceptive. I think it is slightly confusing because we need to talk about who really owns everything and everyone. We're going to look at what that demonic oppression does. After talking about that, we're going to look at how it's still present today. Many people think this is kind of an old idea and that we're now modern and so we don't have to deal with this problem anymore. We're going to look at Jesus being revealed as the deliverer, the one who is able to cause a shift and a change in the spiritual realm by his very words that he speaks with his breath. That's amazing. And if you if you miss this interplay between Jesus Christ and, God in the flesh, fully God, fully man, taking authority over demonic spirits and driving them out of a person, we see we see the demonstration of his authority. When he later will say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, there's many testimonies that that is true beforehand right? And so we're going to see him. This is part of the mission of Christ. The mission of Christ was not simply to die on the cross. That was the culmination of the mission, but the mission entailed revealing the heart of the father to a wayward people, a people who throughout all of your Bible, you can see them running away from God. He pulls them out of Egypt and yet they turn away and follow other gods. He takes them into exile and humbles them. They repent and he brings them back. And what happens? They have to go into exile again. Because they're constantly turning away from the Lord, and this is the father's final revelation of his heart. He wants them to be his children, he wants them to be at peace and clean before him. Finally, we're going to look at the tragic mistake that this city makes an absolutely tragedy uh at tr- Absolutely tragic thing happens when they ask him to leave, and then we're going to look at the faithful witness that this man actually does. He doesn't go back to Gerasene. He goes to the cities of the Decapolis, which means the ten cities. They're what is properly known as uh, Syria today. That region, he, he begins to go as a precursor, a pre-apostle, if you will, to share what has happened to him through Jesus so that when the gospel is finally ready to go out, it's going to find great fruit in Syria. Syria to this day has remained a capital, a stronghold in the Christian faith throughout the last 2,000 years. And, and I'm convinced that Jesus' demonstration of his authority and this man's testimony was somewhat the precursor to all of that taking place. So we're going to look at the passage in those areas with those five emphases, and then uh, we'll, we'll see how this all relates to Jesus Christ inviting us to the table to be at peace with him. So, Jesus finds this person who's living among the tombs. If you don't remember from last week, if you weren't here, we talked about Jesus having ministered in a number of cities, and then he gets in a boat with his disciples. They go across the the Sea of Galilee, and there's a storm which comes suddenly. We saw that that storm was like a hurricane. And we saw how Jesus rebukes the disciples, not for fear of the storm, but for rather allowing that fear to invade their heart. In such a way as to cause them to doubt whether Jesus Christ cared. Do you remember from last week we said the, the disciples asked Jesus the question, Master, we're perishing, do you not care? And he rebukes them, not for their fear of the storm, because he actually does something about the storm, but he does re- rebuke them for allowing their fear to displace the faith and the trust that they have that God, is really on, uh, God has really called them on mission. And they're really going to go to the other side. And this other side that they arrive at is right where they meet this man. And so the disciples, you have to remember, the disciples have just seen a context where Jesus, with his words, says to the winds and the waves that they've overcrossed, they've crossed the boundary of their authority, and they have begun to cause a storm which is not lawful, it's not permitted. And so he rebukes the storm and commands it to submit and they 're about to see even greater things than this, if Jesus Christ has the authority to speak to the winds and the waves, surely he has the authority to speak to spirits and cause them to leave and this is about this is what we 're right about to see so this man as the as Mark records, is not identified as a garrison because he 's not living in the city he 's living in among the tombs now this may not be um, very common for you today if you drive around the city of Dayton you 'll see uh, grave sites, you'll see uh, tombstones in places that are surrounded by other people living. But originally, when our city was much younger, they put the cemetery away from the city center. If you have ever been to Woodland, you know that it's at the highest point. And it's away from the city center because back before you had a car engine, it was quite difficult to get up very large hills and build houses on hills. It was just more economical to build houses downtown. And that's why we have a city center, which is on a plain, and we have other regions which are later in their development up on the hillsides. If you have ever bought a house or looked at houses, you know that this region, this neighborhood is the 1930s. That's much later in the development of our city than the downtown region. And the reason why people put cemeteries away from cities was that part of the culture of the living versus the dead. Those who were Jews were not allowed to touch the flesh of dead people lest they become ceremonially unclean for a time and they must have to wait until they're allowed to come into the tabernacle of God. And so the dead were not among the living. This is why Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. And why do you look for the dead among the living, right? Or if the living among, among the dead, excuse me. It shouldn't have been the case that this person was living in this tomb area. It is not right for him to live there. That's not a place for a good habitation. And so we're beginning to see a little bit of the characteristic of what's going on with this person. How did he get here? We have to ask ourselves. Rather than a name, this man is identified with death, tombs, chains, and shackles. He's not given a description of his life other than he used to pull apart the chains and used to tear the shackles and wrench them or, or twist them such that they would not be able to hold him. And so this man who doesn't even have control over his own soul is not able to be controlled. This war that is going on in his heart and in his soul is exploding, and it's causing his entire lifestyle, his entire life, to be one of rage and anger and fury. We're going to look at these verses here, Mark 5, 2 through 5. When Jesus stepped out of the boat, uh, he saw the man, verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. Now, who's doing the binding? Those who are doing the binding are the, the men of Gerasene, who are no longer wanting this person to live among them. And so this person is causing strife in the city. And rather than attempting to take care of this person, rather than attempting to find grace in God to heal this person, they do what they know how to do, which is the natural response to sin. The natural response to sin, for those who do not have the tool of the gospel, they don't have any resource knowing the grace of God, is they substitute something else. Because they cannot change the war that's going on in this man's heart, they attempt to bind it from the outside. But we know that that will never do. The sin which is in the heart cannot be removed through some physical means. And so this man continues to war against it. And verse 5, look at this. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. Contrast this with the tabernacle of David. God had, by the Holy Spirit, revealed to David that David was to set up a place in Israel where day and night there would be unceasing devotion to Yahweh through music and song. This is a torment which is taking over this person's life such that he is not living on the natural schedule of sunrise to sunset. He's one who is filled with torment such that he can't do anything about it. He's being overrun. He's a social outcast by way of his spiritual condition. He's unable to live among the people because of the rage and the strife, which is constantly at work. He is essentially a spiritual leper. If you remember the Old Testament, God told Israel that those who are infected with leprosy, a withering of the flesh, uh, um, um, something like, uh, um, what's the word that starts with G? John Gray. Gangrene. Thank you. He's filled with gangrene. This is what leprosy is. Thank you. That's a good word that starts with G, God. This this man has a spiritual gangrene. And if you've ever seen a picture of gangrene, if you have this, please don't show this to your children. They'll be upset. But if you have the stomach for it, consider what the nature of sin is. And then go to Google and type in in their image search, gangrene. Because that is what sin is. Jesus says that sin resides in the heart. What is the promise of the New Testament or the New Covenant? That God would cut out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. It is a surgery that must take place. This man cannot permit his spiritual condition to go on. He will be destroyed. It's surprising. It's, if, but if God had not predetermined that Jesus Christ would topple over these demonic spirits, they would have overrun him. And it's amazing that he's even lived in this condition that long and not been killed or not committed suicide. This is a person who needs a radical doctor who is able not to cut the flesh, but the spirit. And that's what Jesus does. His perpetual violence against himself through cutting reminds us of the prophets of Baal that Elijah challenged. Do you remember the prophets of Baal? Elijah is setting up a war. He he sets up a confrontation. There are these prophets who are worshiping Baal, this false god of money and, and child sacrifice. This, this God of fertility that, they, that the Israelites had been, been convinced to worship, the other nations having uh, established a cult to Baal. And, and Elijah comes and confronts them, and they begin to call upon their God. And one of the ways that they do it is they cut themselves in a, in a ritual manner to let blood out. There's something mysterious, but the scriptures tell us plainly that the life is in the blood. And this stoning, this, this cutting himself with stones is actually, the word for it is the same word as the word which God commanded them to put to death, those who were sinners among them, those who had taken life or those who had committed adultery, those who had destroyed and broken the law of God, they were called to stone. And so this man is continually self-stoning. You can think of it kind of like he is the scapegoat for the entire city. At this point, we're going to note a subtle difference between demonic oppression and possession. And I think it's very helpful to understand why many Christians believe that you cannot, if you're a Christian, you cannot be affected by demons. And that is completely ridiculous. It is only the case that those who are Christians have the authority as children of God, as those who are brothers to brothers and sisters to Jesus Christ, who have any means of deliverance. And so, those who are Christians are the only ones who we should be uh, really going after deliverance with. Because if you're not inside of Christ, it's not clear that there's any authority to speak over you. Now, I do believe deliverance is part of the gospel, and that's what we're seeing here. But those who think that demonic op- oppression cannot touch Christians, is it's mainly because of a misunderstanding of demonic oppression versus demonic possession. They say rightfully, and I would agree, that no Christian can be owned by or possessed by a demon because they belong to Christ. And I say hardly, amen. Paul says clearly in 1 Corinthians that you cannot take what is joined to Christ and join it to a harlot. It doesn't actually work, even though that's what people who commit sexual immorality are trying to do. Those who are in Christ are unified to him, and no one can snatch them out of his hand. That is true. But that's not what demonic oppression is. Demonic oppression is an influence from demonic spirits which come and pester you. They don't own you. Demons can't own anything in any real sense. Think about ownership. I own a car out there. I have a title deed to it, and I'm allowed to use it. I'm allowed to move it. I'm allowed to take it where I want it to go, and it's my possession to sell. In a very real sense, you could say that I possess the Jetta, right? But I also use it in a manner that's consistent with my ownership. Now, Is it not also true that I could go down the street and find a car, maybe John Bradbury's nice big red truck, and I could smash the window and I could, if I had a screwdriver or some technology, I could start it up and I could take it where I want. Does that mean I own it? No. But does that mean I'm using it in a way that's inconsistent with my ownership? Yes. That's true. So it's very clear that demons cannot own anything in any real sense. They're spiritual beings. They don't work. They don't use money to exchange for goods. And and human beings cannot be owned. That's another element here. Human beings cannot be sold. They can't be bought. That's why slavery is immoral. That's why human trafficking is an abomination. And so human beings cannot be possessed in, in any real sense but they can be oppressed. Unless we get down in semantics, even if that's not a convincing understanding, we have to understand that that's not the great element of the war here. The great element of the war is the temptation of the enlightenment process by which we think there's only the physical realm and the spiritual realm is okay and good things are bad, but there's no demonic activity. There's nothing bad that can happen in the spirit. We're just physical beings, There's either two forms of this that it can take. You can become a materialist, that is, someone who believes there's only physical matter and spiritual stuff isn't real. Those people are usually identified with hard atheism or uh, strong atheism, that is, not to say agnosticism, where someone doubts whether there could be a God or not, but someone who's radically convinced that we're all just stuff, we're all just stardust, we're all just atoms floating about, and there's no spiritual dimension to life. That's one danger. The other danger is the heresy of Gnosticism, which says the physical world is bad. Stuff is bad, and spiritual stuff is good. That's a a likewise danger that causes us to miss out on the reality. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the spiritual realm, the spiritual uh, realities that surround us as human beings have not changed since this chapter was written, since this story took place. It is still the case that demonic oppression can take place. It's quite clear that this person is influenced, tormented, and controlled by demons, but that doesn't mean that he's possessed by demons. But it certainly does mean that men, women, and children can be and are tormented by demons which have gained access through sins, transgressions, unforgiveness, and covenant breaking. Two weeks ago, we talked about forgiveness. Maybe it was three weeks ago. We probably mentioned it both weeks, but two or three weeks ago, we talked about forgiveness. And what, is, what does it say that Jesus Christ does to those who do not forgive? He hands them over to the tormentors. And so sin, transgression, crossing over a boundary that has been established by God, harboring unforgiveness, these open you up to demonic influence. You are still a Christian, but if you're harboring sin in your life, if you're tolerating sin to, per, to persist in such a way that you will not repent, you're beginning to open doors to, to demonic influence. That doesn't mean you're possessed, but it doesn't mean you're, you've got your shield up either. And so here we see Jesus Christ coming to restore someone who's got uh, who's completely broken down, who's completely open to demonic influence in his life. It is necessary, if we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, that we understand this passage and that we understand that nothing has really changed. We commit the error of of modernism when we say, well, that stuff happened back then, and now we're scientific, and now we're civilized, and we're not barbaric. Yeah, sure, demons might happen in places like New Guinea or Haiti, but it doesn't happen in the United States. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is what Paul calls a doctrine of demons. They do not want you to believe that they exist so that you're unaware there's a problem. And so here we know that if we are to be disciples of Christ, we must see the need for This part of salvation, that is, the gospel includes not just the message that by faith in Christ, you can be cleansed by his blood and have a right standing with God. But that salvation that Christ wishes to bring into your life does not just determine where you're going after you die or where you're going at the end of the age after the judgment. It also includes being set free from demonic influence here and now today. Absolutely. These demons, we have to see, are real individual spiritual beings who are fallen angels. They're not just some ethereal, oh, we don't know where they're from. It's clear that we believe that God is the maker of all things that are visible and invisible. These demons are not some sort of, you know, spirits that resided in the earth or some weird, you know, like UFO thing. It's very clear that they are just demonic spirits that are part of Christ, uh, part of Satan's kingdom. Jesus, at another point when he's describing how deliverance happens, he's accused of driving out demons by Beelzebub. And he says, if I cast out demons by the prince of demons, then how would that work? A house divided itso- against itself cannot stand. So, he's saying that all these demons are just fallen angels who are all under the command of Satan. And so, likewise, we understand that these demonic angels have a goal They have a purpose that they're trying to to rot in your life. Just like that analogy of me taking John Bradbury's car. I have a goal. I'm going to take it somewhere. I'm going to use it in a wrong way. And that's what demons wish to do. Their aim is to destroy you, body, soul, and spirit, and fill your life with all sorts of bad things, maladies, so that you would not be able to see the light of Jesus Christ. It says the God of God of this age, the small g God, not, not Yahweh, but the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they would not see the light of Jesus Christ. That is, that they have a veil over their eyes, and this is one goal of demonic oppression. It is to keep you from seeing the light of Christ. We commit a modernist error when we imagine that this stuff took place back then and didn't, doesn't take place now it absolutely is vital that you become radically convinced that the Gospels are true and that they tell us uh, true things about the way that human beings work and about the, the nature of the Gospel and how it relates to today. Therefore, coming to true freedom in Christ requires deliverance from evil spirits, and as disciples, we must pursue following Jesus Christ in radical purity, walking in the light, as 1 John says, in order to become those who have authority to speak about these matters and to drive demons out of people. It is necessary if you are a disciple of Christ that you begin to do this. Why? Because Jesus in the Great Commission in Mark 16 says to go into the world and to cleanse the lepers, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, and to what? Cast out demons. They shall cast out demons. It will be a sign which confirms those who are the disciples of Jesus. This is not gospel 2.0. This isn't some ascendancy that you have to mature into. This is your bread. As we see in the gospels, when the, the I think it's a Samaritan woman, she comes to the Lord and says, help my daughter. She's oppressed. She's tormented by demons. And Jesus says to her, I've only come to the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus is saying it's only right for you to get cast uh get get deliverance if you're part of God's covenant. And she says, Lord, even the dogs which sit under the table occasionally get a crumb or two. And he responds to her, What great faith. So here it's clear that if you're coming into the covenant, it's part, it's your portion. It's your inheritance as a believer in Jesus Christ to receive deliverance, and it's your call as a disciple to begin to minister deliverance to those around you. Now, apart from popular culture, there are very few expressions of what deliverance looks like. But let me tell you, if you're confused about that, please don't watch stupid horror movies like the, you know, the Exorcist or some ridiculous heresy like that. Read some books. Read some scripture. Get prepared, get equipped, get connected to some people who've got experience with this. Our churches Very experienced with deliverance, and we're actually beginning to take on a new uh, aspect of that where we're just praying for people and walking them through unforgiveness issues and walking them through uh, issues that they have in their life. And we're not going about it with, you know, holy water and a physical cross and beating somebody with it, and like they do in those ridiculous heretical horror movies. But we're going about it in a way that's both conducive to the person remaining healed and also one that glorifies and honors Jesus Christ. There is no ritual or performance that you can do to drive out demons. Jesus here gives words, and those words become spirit and life, and it translates to life for this person. So let's see what Jesus Christ does in doing this. This scene presents a dramatic confrontation with the powers of darkness. If you've ever seen a great uh, sci-fi movie or a great fantasy movie like um, Star Wars, Star Trek, Lord of the Rings, any of the superhero movies that are coming out today, the reason why they're so appealing is because you were created with the sense, especially men were created, with the sense of a need for a great war and confrontation between light and darkness. One can think of Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader, this wonderful clash between the two uh, forces and all the while, Luke is being tempted by the Emperor. Give in to your anger, et cetera, et cetera. Now, before I go off the deep end in, in my Star Wars love or my my. Uh, I'm a big fan of those movies. Uh, this happens not just in movies, it also happens in narratives. It happens in biographies. These great character struggles, these great these great confrontations between the powers of light and the powers of darkness. One one might remember the example we gave just a few minutes ago where the prophets of Baal go ag- up against Elijah. That exact same confrontation style happens here, but it's much more fulfilling than any sci-fi story or fantasy novel could present. Because it shows the light of Jesus Christ. It shows the authority and the power that he has over demonic spirits. So if you're ready, this scene, although it may seem boring, I want you to engage your imagination and think about what it was like for the disciples to see these things, because by the scriptures, we can behold them. So Jesus, verse six, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. This is this man who is oppressed. He's tormented. He's constantly cutting himself. He's constantly taking stones and hitting himself with these things. He's able to break chains. He comes and kneels down. He falls down at the feet of Jesus Christ. And he screams out, verse 7, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, this is kind of like a film which is shot in reverse order. Verse 7 happens, but then verse 8 says what was going on before verse 7. Why does this happen? For he was saying, Jesus Christ was saying to him, this man, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so, Jesus is speaking to the spirit, and yet this spirit is speaking through this oppressed man, this person who is totally given over to demonic oppression. Verse 9, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And this is when we begin to see the sociological or the societal aspect of this passage. Why are there thousands of demons on this man? I'm just going to let that question rest. Let it marinate in your mind. Why is this person tormented with so many demons? The demon recognizes Christ and invokes God's name to be spared for spirit of judgment. I think that's kind of ironic and funny, don't you? The scripture says that the de- the, even the de- demons believe in God and they actually tremble. And that's what's happening here. The demon is a, he says, I adjure you by God. Or, and so this idea is that the demon is trying to call on the authority of God to get the son of God, not to pester them before they are ready to be pestered. Uh, Revelation shows us a scene where the Satan and his angels are thrown into a fiery torment of hell and they're bound with chains and that, that God pours his wrath against them forever. And knowing that's their future, this demon, because he is a hater of God and, and in league with Satan, wishes to take other humans with him there. And so he is knowing his final destiny. So when he sees those, uh, the one who is his judge, he immediately says, don't torment me. In another place in the Gospels, it says, "Do not torment. Us. have you come here to torment us before the time? And so Jesus here is doing battle against this demonic spirit. And he finds out this piece of information, which gives us a clue of what's going on in this city. And Jesus is saying to this spirit with physical words, with physical breath, causing a spiritual reality to take place. This is amazing to me. The demon recognizes Christ and invokes God's name to be spared from judgment. If the demon's worry carries any weight, we see the spiritual potency of Christ. Jesus just shows up. You know, it's kind of like, have you ever turned over a rock that's been lying for a while? What do you see when you turn over the rock? Centipedes and pill bugs and ants and slugs and uh, just terrible things. Jesus just shows up in this place and he starts freaking out. And so this is Jesus coming, and, and we see through this demon's reaction a glimpse of the spiritual power, the spiritual potency, the effectiveness that, that Jesus Christ has. Not only is Jesus fully God and fully man, but he has authority over the demons and will come to judge him them, as we've just talked about. That is the end goal here for Jesus Christ. All demons will be tormented eternally by Jesus Christ. He is the judge. And so this demon freaks out. <laughs> I would too, if I was in that situation. The demons asked to be sent into swine. Now, before we talk about this, it's it's important for you to read all of your scriptures because all of your scriptures give reference and weight to and support interpretation of all other scriptures. We know through the law that swine were a symbol of uncleanness to Israel. They were not allowed to eat them. They were not allowed to even touch the dead carcasses of these swine. And so these demons say, don't drive us out of the country, but let us go into the swine. Why is that? And what is that saying? It's saying that they find a suitable home in these people just as much as they do in these pigs. That is not supposed to be the case. God had called Israel to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. We see that reiterated in the call to the church in first Peter. These people were supposed to be the shining light that through from Zion, from Jerusalem would go the law that, that, They would export the worship of Yahweh, the faithful covenant, to all of the world. And yet, here we see one of them who is of the order or of the state where he's just as unclean as a pig. Jesus drives out these demons, which is to say that Christ commanded a spiritual reality to take place through his words. He says his words are spirit and their life. He says some words in the physical, which is also in the spiritual, and it causes a spiritual reality to take place. The demons enter the swine and then rush into the sea, a perpetual symbol of the abyss. Why do they rush into the sea? Because that is where demons wish to take their tormented. Demons wish to drive those who they oppress, those who they seek to inhabit into hell. And that is exactly where they take these pigs, into the sea, a symbol of the abyss, a symbol of, of judgment. That symbol shows up over and over again in the book of Revelation, the book of Isaiah. And so here we see this is what demons wish to do. This is what they're all about. And Jesus is uh, highlighted and lifted up as the deliverer. Now, here is where we begin to see the societal aspect really take a lot of um, a lot of shape. It, it really becomes quite clear what's going on as soon as this confrontation happens with the city. And it happens because of a parallelism or a thing over here that connects with a thing over here. We're going to connect the dots, if you will. There's two dots here and they're connected. They're connected in what they appeal Christ to do. Verse 15, and they, that is the people came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, the one who had been who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. You have to be able to read the inference from a scripture. If they saw him clothed and in his right mind, that means before that, they saw him naked or he used to live in shame and out of his mind. This is someone who's tormented by demons such that he is out of his right mind. He's not able to be described as sane or logical or rational or normal. Verse 16, and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Verse 17, the great tragedy and the dot which connects to another dot, and we're going to see how this is happening. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Think about that for a second. This man who was a torment to the city, this man who would have to be bound with chains, I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to apprehend somebody, I've wrestled some people. I've never wrestled a demonic infested person, and I've never wrestled someone who's able to break chains. That would be terrifying. This person is a torment to the city. This person is one who is receiving all sorts of fear, condemnation, anger from the rest of the citizens, and yet when they see him clothed and in his right mind, they don't say Jesus you're amazing. They're not in awe. It says they're afraid. Why are they afraid? We're going to see that in a minute, what what the answer to that is. But the natural expectation of us seeing this story would be that the city rejoices. Over and over again, the Proverbs say, when the brokenhearted are bounded up, then people rejoice. When the righteous of a city are blessed, the people rejoice. The natural response to grace coming into the life of a member of a city is for the rest of the city to rejoice. And yet here they ask Jesus to leave. This is striking. This is tragic. If Christ has done this for just one man, what could he do for the whole city? You have to think about this as a human being who's been cast away from another group of people and imagine how he got there. Now, the scripture doesn't give us a lot of insight, but it does give us two dots which we're about to connect. This person obviously was the recipient of scorn, wrath, anger, malice from the rest of the city. We have to understand that if there is one who can come out of this city and live among the tombs, then there is something tragically wrong going on in the town. Upon seeing this man healed, why are these people not rejoicing instead of being afraid? The reason why is because they had loved, they had become uh, comfortable with and tolerant of this man's oppression such that they were calloused in heart and also used him as a scapegoat by which all of their anger, all of their wrath would be transferred onto this person who was broken. And they rather would have the status quo than receive the grace of God. Through their begging, we see the satanic connection, the dots, right? What did the demons do? They begged Christ not to send them out of where? The country. Right? Why did they not want to leave the country? They were at home there. They were there because they had a a welcome place in the city. The city was comfortable with allowing this person to be like the scapegoat, the one who is cast out from among them, right? Just as the demons beg Christ not to send them out of the country, the people ask him to leave their country because they want to be together. They don't want Jesus Christ to come and disrupt the status quo. or or topple any of their societal order, what they've become comfortable with. They want things to just be normal rather than have the grace of God enter into their city. And this is the great condemnation that John 3 says, that the light of the world comes into the world, but here's the judgment, that the world did not come to the light, but rather hated the light because they loved the darkness. That's what it means for the gospel call, the, the warning of a coming judgment to be added to the gospel, to be an essential element of the gospel, is that if you do not receive Christ, it is not because you weren't given the chance or you weren't given a free offer or, or such. It is because you hate God. This is the judgment that these people loved the wickedness. They would rather have this demoniac living among the tombs so that he they could remain just, you know, constantly justifying themselves saying, well, at least I'm not like that guy or constantly being afraid of that guy or constantly having him be the spectacle rather than seeing some problem in their own lives. They wished to continue scapegoating. This you see happen a lot of times in families, especially with the youngest, or we talk about social pariahs or the black sheep of the family. It's a similar element to what's happening in this story. Rather than receiving the light of Christ to have true societal order and peace, they simply want things to go back to normal. They're not willing to have Jesus disrupt the rest of their lives. People often say, I want more of the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is God, and oftentimes his plans do not accord with your plans. I was at the funeral of my grandfather, and they released a dove at the end. And, you know, when we were about to see that dove released— we thought, oh, he'll waft right into the heavenlies and he'll slowly fly in a graceful manner. No, they opened the basket and he almost like hit like three or four people on his way out. Just because the dove is a symbol of peace doesn't mean you can control the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Father will not conform to your norm. They will, they will break your box. And that's what this city demonstrates by asking him to leave. They don't want him. Christ acquiesces. Obviously, he's not going to stay. It's not time for judgment. It's clear that they don't want him. He doesn't even war against it. He, when he's in Nazareth, you may remember from another spot in the gospel, it says that he was unable to do many miracles in Nazareth because of their unbelief. The Nazarenes had grown up, oh, this is just that Jesus kid that we've all grown up with. I mean, there were literally people in Nazareth who were in elementary school or whatever equivalent they had there who had seen him growing up. Who They were familiar with Jesus rather than Fond of him rather than adoring him, and so he wasn't able to do many miracles. What was the outcome? Jesus didn't stay in Nazareth for very long. So Christ acquiesces; he he gives in to their their begging, their plea for him to leave. But as he's leaving, he does something by which we see the true marks of someone who has received grace. This person, this uh, garrison man, this this man who had lived among the tombs, who had lived as an outcast, has finally seen one who will show him some mercy and grace. What happens? This man immediately wishes to be with Jesus. Verse 18, And as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. This person wants to become a disciple. What does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, I called you that you would be, that you would be with me. That was the call for the disciples. It wasn't that the disciples were ultimately going to be these amazing apostles who go and do miracles in Israel and then to the utmost parts of the earth. That was the outcome. But the call of the disciples, Jesus says, I appointed them that they would be with me. And this man who was possessed by demons has the exact same fruit in his life. It says that he wanted to be with him. Verse 19, and he did not permit him, but said, Now, stop the tape. Doesn't this seem harsh? (laughs) Jesus Christ just delivered a man from demonic oppression, which was causing him to live estranged from all human society. It's widely recognized today in our time that both UN Convention and Geneva Conventions have acknowledged that isolation from other human beings is torture. It's illegal to put someone in solitary captivity for more than, I think, a day. That, you know, there's laws about this because we've begun to understand that people need to be with other people. Jesus delivers this guy from a condition which causes him to be alone. This person has true fruit of grace wanting to be with Jesus and Jesus doesn't permit him. Isn't it often the case that God has called you to do things that at the time you don't understand? Absolutely. Absolutely. You must be able to trust Jesus Christ, the one who we rely on for our salvation and deliverance in the first place, that his will, his plan for you is much better than you can even imagine in the moment. Even if you can't understand it, he's got a good call on your life. And so here in verse 19, Jesus shows this call. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This city doesn't want Jesus Christ, but guess what? It's too late. Someone in their city has already been infected. And unlike their previous condition, this one's going to spread in a good way. Instead of wrath, rage, strife, he's going to bring peace and a message of hope that they should all trust in the Messiah, the one to come and save Israel from her sins. And so Jesus Christ is glorified here. Verse 20, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, that is in the 10 cities, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. It's too late. If you want Jesus to leave your region, he's coming. Now, to be sure, it was wrong for them to ask him to leave. It would have been much better. Jesus says that societies are culpable for their response to the gospel. In Matthew 23:24,25, 25, Jesus is issuing a judgment against Jerusalem and all of Israel. And he says something that's very interesting. He says, woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin, two cities in Israel. He says, because it would have been more, uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah will rise up at the judgment and condemn you because if the works which were done in you had been done in them, they would have repented long ago. It is wrong for a society to beg Jesus Christ to leave, and it will be an aspect of the judgment. There is both an individual and corporate judgment which will come upon people. And so it's wrong to ask God to leave from our public square. It's wrong to ask Jesus Christ to not bring deliverance to those who were comfortable with being the problem child, the black sheep, the scapegoat. It's absolutely wrong to respond in that way, but the grace of the gospel is that Jesus Christ will triumph at least he triumphs in this story. Unlike the city, the man wants to be with Christ and Christ gives him this mission. The one who is driven away from this community will now go and share the story of what Christ has done and will be the one who brings grace to the community. This is what the gospel includes. Those areas which you have been tormented in, those areas where someone has abused you physically, sexually, those are Uh, areas of damage in your life. Perhaps you've had problems of permitting a certain type of sin or a certain way of thinking about God, which has been destructive to you. The gospel calls healing into that area, but it's not just healing. It's also strength. The one who is cast out from among the city returns and shares a message of forgiveness and grace. This one who was the scapegoat, the recipient of all the anger and the hatred and the malice of this city now comes with a message of forgiveness. This is what the gospel includes. It does not just include a message of you will go to heaven instead of hell at the end of your days. Surely, brothers and sisters, that is in view. But that is so small compared to the societal aspect which God intends to have through bringing you to Jesus Christ. Through this account, we see the power of Christ in bringing healing and deliverance, in toppling this kingdom of darkness, and in confronting the social dysfunction which desired the status quo rather than the gospel. Jesus Christ is not just victorious over death so that you could be victorious over death at the end of your life. He is victorious over all powers and the world. He says, do not be afraid, for I have overcome the world. And Jesus Christ, by overcoming the world, is sending you on a mission to go into all the world. And that's where we pick up our discipleship. We are called to seek life in Christ and are warned against the dangers of bidding Christ to depart from our region. This passage clearly shows that it would have been better for Christ to stay. And yet he has mercy, even in the midst of a great injustice that they've done against the Lord. It's my opinion that if we are to recapture a vision for our our uh, discipling. That is how we are discipled, how we disciple others. It must include deliverance from evil spirits. If we do not, we are dangerously leaving people influenced by and open to things which harm them, spirit, soul, and body. And it is vital upon hearing this that you are now accountable to the Lord. Upon hearing this message, you now have to respond accordingly. You either can ignore this message And move away from this idea that deliverance from evil spirits is a part of gospel today, that it's a part of people's lives today, or you can answer the call of Christ to not only become healed yourself, which we can help you do, but also to heal others. What is the great prophecy? And I think it's Isaiah 61, that those who were brokenhearted, those who were abused, those who were prisoners, they would be set free and they would do what? Restore the ancient foundations. They would be those who are repairers of the breach. It's not the pastor. It's not the apostle. It's not the evangelist who is supposed to do all the work. It's those who have been redeemed and have had grace come upon them who then become redeemers themselves. Little are redeemers. Paul says concerning the gospel, which he brings to all the cities in the, in the ancient Mediterranean world, he says that I fill up what is lacking in the measure of Christ's sufferings. He says that in Colossians. Now why, I, I believe it's Colossians, it maybe Galatians. It doesn't matter where it is. Why is Paul saying that he's filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Is Paul saying that there's something lacking in the cross? Far be it from Paul. No, he's not. What is lacking in the sufferings of of Christ is they have not yet been presented to these cities. The message hasn't been taken. And so Paul is filling up in his body what is lacking because he is like a man prostrated out before that people would be able to to, uh, have a bridge by which they would be able to encounter Christ. This is what it means for us to pour out our lives as a drink offering, which Paul also says concerning his, his apostolic leadership team that they are dying daily. Why are they dying daily? Is it because Christ's death wasn't sufficient? No, it's because it requires your death. It requires you submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in order to be able to speak to those who are hurting and broken around you. It requires a total surrender so that you would be raised up and that through you, other people would find grace in Jesus. And that is the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful call that we have as being your disciples. We ask you, Lord, that you would give us grace that we would not hear this message and, and wish to stay ignorant, that we would not be like this city and, and ask you to leave us alone. But Lord, that you would open our eyes to the reality of these things, that we would recognize that you are the maker of, of heaven and earth. Not only that, but you are the maker of the spiritual realm and the physical, that your son has authority over evil spirits and that through your son, through faith in his name, that we can have healing. Lord, I pray that you would equip us to be those who would have compassion on brokenhearted people around us, those who are oppressed by demons, those who are schizophrenic, those who are tormented by various anguishes and various forms of psychological illnesses. We ask, Lord, that you would give us an understanding of these things, that we would not be ignorant, but that we would see it's a necessary and right element of your gospel. Lord, we pray that you would restore to us power not only over spiritual uh uh spiritual forces of wickedness but also lord that you would give to us the ministry of signs and wonders that we would be able to heal those and that healing would be a confirmation of the the word that your son is king lord we pray that you would restore to the church a, a vital understanding of the healing of souls that we would no longer preach a gospel which is truncated and small that only concerns itself with after death, but rather that it breaks into life, that the kingdom be established here and now, that your son would receive glory among all of our friends, family, and coworkers, that through the, through the example of this man, we would testify to them the mighty things that you've done. Lord, we ask that you would now call us to fellowship at your table, that you would redeem us from wrong doctrines, and that you would, in eating with us, show us the truth.